Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. If you've listened to this podcast or really anything I've done or said in my adult life, you know that fighting against the oppression of women is my life's work. Recently, in Iran, we've seen this oppression boil over into huge anti-government protests in that country and around the world after Masa Amini died in the custody of that country's incredibly immoral morality police. To help us understand the importance and current state of those protests, I've invited actor and comedian Nazanin Noor on the show. Nazanin has appeared in television shows like Madam Secretary and Criminal Minds, and as a judge on Persia's Got Talent. According to members of her family, her mother and her brother, who have spoken to media outside of Iran. They say that Massa was arrested on September 13th when she was leaving a subway station in the capital, Tehran. Her brother was with her at the time. She was uh, detained by the morality police. Iranian authorities reportedly have placed Massa Amini's family under house arrest. Protests have been sweeping across Iran since September when the 22-year-old died in the custody of the country's morality police. Now demonstrators are calling for regime change. The protests in Iran are snowballing. This one in memory of a fellow protester, Nika Shakarami, killed in September. More than 200 people have reportedly died in the backlash against demonstrations. Hi, my name is Nazani Noor, and I'm fighting to amplify the voices of the people of Iran as they fight for their freedom. Sorry, not sorry. Nazani, thank you. So, so, so very much for being here. And before we dive in to all the important things that we're going to talk about today, will you just tell my listeners a little bit about who you are? 
Yeah, I'm an Iranian American. I was born and raised here on the East Coast, but you know, I'm very close to my roots and culture and have traveled to Iran many times. I'm an actor, I write, I'm a voiceover artist too, and causes that affect humanity have always been very dear to me. I've always tried to be as loud as I can and use whatever platform I have to be able to raise awareness for various issues and topics. Obviously, what's going on in Iran is going to affect me on a really deep level personally, and so the current situation has been extremely distressing for all Iranians, obviously inside of Iran and in the diaspora. So I'm doing my best to use my voice to highlight what's going on there. As someone who also tries to use her platform for good, thank you so much for doing that. I know that it's not the easy path. And I just want to say, I acknowledge you, I see you, and I so appreciate you taking a stand, even though it can sometimes be really hard. And before we get to what's happening right now in Iran, I just want to go back a little bit for my listeners who may not understand the history. So fill us in a little bit what life was like for women in that country before the current protests. Iran, you know, we go back 2,500 years. And before the Islamic Revolution of 1979, Iran was ruled as a monarchy. The last dynasty in power were the Pahlavis and freedoms that women had under that administration, under that form of government were obviously different than they are now. My parents grew up during that time period. So, of course, no country is perfect and it had its own issues. But there were, of course, there were freedoms there that women do not have now and people and citizens do not have now. And so what happened was a revolution in 1979. It was led by the Ayatollah Khomeini and he was in exile in France. He was brought back to the country to lead this revolution and to, uh, you know, the Shah got ousted and he came in and he immediately declared Iran an Islamic Republic. So they were, they went from a monarchy to a theocracy. So he and his administration began rule over Iran, turned the name into the Islamic Republic. And then that's what we see today. So women were stripped of pretty much all of their rights, human rights. Women were then forced to cover So there was a very strict dress code put into place. The hijab, which is the head covering, was put in place. A manto had to be worn, which looks basically like a... They can look like raincoats is the best way that I can explain it. Some women wore chadors, which is the long black dress that you see. And also, I will say before 1979, people lived side by side. There were people who chose to cover that were of the Muslim faith. And then there were people like my family that didn't cover. And although my grandmothers did, they wore a headscarf in public, but they never asked their children to do the same. So it was very much people just living side by side, doing their own thing. But after 1979, it all changed because it became law to have to cover up. And some of the laws that are in place now, I think you're going to want to get into a a little bit later, but we can discuss those too about how exactly women are not considered equal to men. We can dive into that now. Let's get right into that. Yeah. Some of the things, you know, a woman's testimony in court is worth 50% of a man's. Of course, the dress code, which was the catalyst for this current uprising and revolution, protesting against the forced mandatory hijab. But it always quickly turns into anti-government sentiment because at the basis of all of this is that Iranians do not want to live under this oppressive theocracy any longer. So they're fighting to get rid of this regime. It's one of the biggest chances, death to the regime, death to the dictator. Women are not allowed to sing in public alone 
unless they're joined by a chorus of people. Women cannot attend sporting matches. So soccer stadiums and anything, anywhere that there are sporting events, women are not allowed to go. It's always men that are in the stands. And women cannot ride bicycles. If there's going to be a divorce, the government, the the courts, they side with the man immediately. Custody immediately goes to the man. Women need to have permission from their husbands to travel, to pursue education. These are just some of the things that they deal with on a daily basis. And also the fact that walking down the street, there are these morality police in place. And if your headscarf isn't to their liking, if your coat that you're wearing is a little too short or your pants are a little too tight, you get stopped and you can suffer the same fate as Mafsa Gina Amini did, which is to die at the hands of the police because of their beatings or their brutality. So walking down the street safely as an Iranian woman is not as prevalent. The morality police, who are these people? Do they sign up for it? And what do they consider immoral? So here's the thing. The name, they're called Gashta Ershad in Persian, kind of translates to guidance patrol. And it's also called morality police, but their name has changed over the years. Back in the day, they were called like Gashta Sorola. So the name has changed, but it's essentially the exact same body of people that are they're supposed to do the same thing, which is it's just based on who wants to give you a hard time on that day. And also the president in power, because years ago when there was a technically quote unquote reformist president in power, maybe they'll ease restrictions on women. So it's like, oh, you can wear bright nail polish now. Oh, it's okay if your head scarf falls back. It's fine. No one's going to really bother you. Then a hardliner president comes in and they crack down, which is what happened over the last year when Ebrahim Raisi came in. He's a hardliner. They made a statement, as did Khamenei, who is the supreme leader of Iran. He basically is the top guy that they're going to crack down on women's hijab and dress. So they made it very public. We're going to go back to the strictness of it. So you guys better watch out. That's what we've seen, unfortunately, unfold. Let's try to do justice to Masha Amini and what happened to her and why. So she was visiting Tehran, the capital of Iran, with her family. She's also of Kurdish descent. And the Kurds are an ethnic minority in Iran, so they're already persecuted as well. And another thing to note is that her Kurdish name is Jina. So you will see on social media, Masa Amini, but you'll also see Masa Jina Amini. And the reason for that is under Islamic Republic rules, there's like a certain list of names that you're allowed to use to name your children officially on their birth certificate. And they don't allow ethnic names because they claim it's un-Islamic. And so Masa was the name that her parents gave her, but Jina is the name that her family would call her. So you'll see both. So I think it's important to note that's because their identities tend to get erased. As we meet today, Iran is in turmoil, in part as a consequence of the killing of the 22-year-old Jina Mahsa Amini, an Iranian woman from Kurdish minority. In my view, um, she is a victim of state brutality and state repression. Yes, but not only that, also social media. I feel like, you know, things become a hashtag and we really 
lose the identity of not only the person, but what they stood for and why it became a, a hashtag in the first place. And so it's so hard to then go back and try to do justice to these people's lives or the movement because it just becomes like a stamp. The thing with her, the hashtag Masa Amini, it's become the most used hashtag in the history of Twitter. And it's had 100 million impressions on Instagram. So I know that Iranians and Iranians in diaspora tend to use that for every post to keep that going. And the news can pay attention to it. But we have all tried to add her Kurdish name as well to those hashtags so that her identity doesn't get erased. So she traveled to Tehran with her family. She was stopped and detained by the morality police for bad hijab. And she was taken and she tried to fight it. Her brother tried to fight it and asked them, please don't take her because everybody knows what can happen if they are victorious in taking you. Witnesses that were there and other people that were in the morality police van with her reported that she was hit in the head with a baton multiple times and that her head was slammed against the morality police van. And this is very consistent with videos that we have seen come out of Iran for years of the way that these people brutalize the women and girls of Iran and how they really do throw them around like they're ragdolls. And so she gets to what's called a re-education center, which is where they take these women and, you know, right your wrongs <laughs> and that you don't commit whatever quote unquote crime that they've deemed you guilty of. There's CCTV footage of her passing out at this re-education center. She's taken to the hospital. She falls into a coma. She dies two days later. Her CT scan was released to several Persian media outlets, and it showed that the cause of death was repeated blows to the head by blunt force objects. So the government comes out and says, no, she had a pre-existing heart condition. She died of a heart attack at 22 years old. Her family immediately came out and said she had no pre-existing conditions. Our daughter was murdered. And this sparked, this was the spark of the protests. And I liken it to George Floyd's murder at the hands of the police that we all went out a couple of years ago to support Black Lives Matter and that movement. And it wasn't just because of George Floyd. It was because of the bigger issue of police brutality and systemic racism, African-American space in the U.S. So this was the same thing. It started as we need to avenge this woman's death and we are against forced hijab. And then it turned quickly into we also want this government gone. That is the gist of how this all started. I don't think I've ever covered a more difficult story in my 20 years as a journalist. The first reaction was complete and utter shock and disbelief that this would happen in 2022. And what transpired afterwards was just a whirlwind of emotion, not just for me, but for many women that I spoke to in Tehran. Ordinary women that I was meeting and talking to, they start crying and telling me that they don't know what else to do but cry out of anger. That was the first reaction most of the women I knew had to her death. I'm always amazed, and I think it's just part of who we are as people, how a moment can become a movement. And I think it's just innately in us to be moved to fight through injustices and fight for a fair and just future. And that spark, which is a perfect way to describe these movements, can happen from anywhere. And I feel like you can't manufacture them. It usually is a civilian, unexpected story that will spark these emotions and these needs for people to take to the streets in mass to create change. Talk us through the protests in response to her killing. How did they start and how have they been able to persist? 
which I find incredibly fascinating because here in the U.S., and not to compare the two countries and the level of oppression that women feel in Iran, but like we march for like an afternoon and then we're like, oh, we did it. We used our First Amendment right. And it's so hard to convey to people that all of these movements need to be sustained. It's hard to convince organizers that the way in which they need to organize these rallies and these marches and these protests is with sustainability. So tell me about how it started. And I think I'm more interested in how they've been able to persist. And here's the thing to understand too about even just the last few years in Iran, the number of protests that have been sparked by other issues that quickly turn anti-government are plentiful. They've been happening more frequently in the last two years. And one thing will spark it. For example, because we're in the month of November, which is Aban, the month of Aban in Iran, it's known as Bloody Aban because in November 2019, protests started over a hike in fuel prices and subsidies that were taken away. The government took fuel subsidies away from the people. So that was a spark that got people out in the streets. And again, turns anti-government, right? Because all of these people are like, yeah, we don't want this regime anymore. So also you guys got to go. And the government comes out. It's the same playbook, shoots, kills, jails, beats, tortures, threatens all of the citizens. And we lost 1500 Iranians that are accounted for, for people that are just protesting for their human rights and for a better life. And that wasn't able to be sustained. And I think there's a few reasons for it too. A, it was a brutal crackdown as it always is, but also media wasn't covering it. I remember where I was when it was happening and I was blown away by the fact that international media, especially maybe said something about it a couple times here and there, and then it was gone. And what they do also is they shut off the internet. They throttle it so that you can't send videos out so people can actually see what's happening. And they really count on everybody in the world and the diaspora to be quiet and not amplify these voices so that they can kill with impunity and get away with it. And it's happened over and over again. And I really feel like this time, something has changed everywhere that everybody's united now we're not allowing this to die. They're not allowing this to die in Iran. The protests sparked. It's like people just come out into the streets and it just catches on like wildfire. And I think also the, because young women, this Gen Z that are really at the forefront of all this, they have had it. They have only lived under an Islamic Republic. They never knew what freedom was like. They're connected to the outside world through all their social media apps. And they can literally see like, well, this is the kind of life I want. Why can't I have this? And they're done. They are fearless. If you don't already know what's happening in Iran right now, please take a second to listen to this. This 22-year-old Mehsa Mini, who was brutally beat by the morality police for not wearing her hijab properly. She was visiting her family while wearing a loose scarf before she was detained. She was then brutally beaten in the head before being declared brain dead in a coma. She later died in the hospital. Stories like this are an everyday thing for the women in Iran. Iran officials are doing everything they can to silence this story. They're cutting off people's internet and beating and killing protesters. They have no voice right now. This is our chance to be our voice for Iran because they cannot help themselves. It's unprecedented what we've been seeing. And we all can learn from their bravery because I don't know if I would be able to go do what they're doing if I was in Iran. You literally face death. We're just taking their lead. You know, you guys keep fighting and we will do everything we can from here to make sure that the world doesn't forget about what's going on. And I think at the core of it is people are just so sick of this regime and they really also feel hope now that the global community is listening to them more. We've never seen this type of unity from people outside of Iran as well, non-Iranians, which is great. I still think we need more support. We need more amplification. We need people to really care. We need feminists 
who really fight hard for women's rights, but a lot of them have been very silent about what's going on to the women of Iran, which I'm very perplexed by, and a lot of people are as well. We need them to join and really come out strong in condemning this government and actually supporting what the people of Iran are saying that they want. Yeah, I think that the feminists in this country are so shocked, even though the activists have been telling them for years that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. They're like, they can't compute that their rights have been stripped so severely and they can't function on both levels. It's been incredibly frustrating. You know, as a UNICEF ambassador, I get daily reports about what's going on throughout the world. And I think the global news sources that we've had in the past have been replaced basically by this opinion news, these op-ed news channels, and people are less aware of what's going on in the world than ever before. And it is so vital that parents, that you sit down, you tell your kids what are what's happening throughout the world, because they're not going to get it from social media. They're going to just get what they normally get from social media because of the algorithms. If we don't educate our youth, then there's never going to be change. You mentioned before that you said these girls are facing death while they're still protesting. And you're right, because more women have been killed in response to these protests. Can you share some of their stories? Sure. Recently, um, another teenage protester named Nika Shakirami. In an exclusive investigation, CNN has looked at the final hours of Iranian teenager Nika Shakirami, who was among the many protesters on the streets days after Amini's death. After analyzing more than 50 videos obtained by CNN and speaking to six eyewitnesses, there's evidence that she was chased, then detained by police just a few hours before she went missing. She went out the day after these protests started, from what we know. She was involved in the protests, and the last text she sent to one of her friends was, I'm being followed by regime forces. And then she ends up dead, but her family did not hear about her death. They were just frantically searching for her for 10 days until the police notified her that, oh, we have your daughter's body. She committed suicide. So this is, again, regime playbook. They kill people and the stories are always heart attack, suicide. And then actually um, CNN did an investigative piece that I saw recently and they have footage of Nika throughout the day from protests that they've gathered from people inside of Iran. So we were able to track where she was and when she was being followed by the police. There's a video that shows her crouching behind a car in traffic asking the car not to drive so that she could stay hidden because she was surrounded within the streets of Iran. And then she ended up dead. And her family was not allowed to properly bury her or mourn her because this is another thing the regime does when they kill people. They will not give you the body sometimes because they want to avoid more protests because they know that people are going to come to this burial. They're going to protest what happened and it's going to cause another commotion and scene. So in order to discourage that from happening, they did what they did to Nika, which was they abducted her dead body before her family knew what was going on and took it and buried it somewhere else on her, what would have been her 17th birthday also. This is just textbook. And I feel like there's nothing that will change this regime. They just need to go.
I want to go back to the global response for a second and compare it to what we saw in Ukraine, which was an immediate coalition that was huge and an international response in opposition to the Russian invasion. Do you think that there has been enough of a global response to the government's killing of its own people? What more should the global community be doing in support of what's going on in Iran? I do not feel that the global response matches the severity of what's going on. And it was definitely not as quick as it was for Ukraine at all. And I think that is, I know that is a point of contention for Iranians because they have felt for years that their plight and their suffering doesn't matter to the outside world because of the lack of response. So now that we're seeing more of a global response, it's really wonderful. It's welcome. And we need it to continue to shine the spotlight because, again, the Islamic Republic has been able to get away with these crimes for years, crimes against humanity, because there's no global response, because they're not held accountable. And there is a petition that has gone around that's gaining steam. It's to create a UN investigative mechanism for crimes against humanity committed by the Islamic Republic, which I know will be spoken about at the UN very soon by the UN Special Rapporteur on Iran. So I know that it's starting to make progress. Now, people in the global community world leaders, elected officials are actually coming together to try to do something about this. So that's a great thing that's happening. We need to see more of that. We need to see more support and solidarity for these investigative mechanisms, for things that can hold the regime officials accountable, as well as people are calling for travel bans and targeted sanctions on regime officials that are connected to the Islamic Republic, as well as connected to the brutal crackdown of the last six weeks to make it that they are not allowed to travel back and forth freely anymore, as well as to identify their assets and offshore accounts abroad and seize those as well. Forgive me for this question because it should not be a question that ever has to be asked, but apparently it is. Why should people around the world care what happens to women in Iran? Well, if you are a supporter of women's rights and human rights, you should care what's happening in Iran. And I think that's an important question that you ask because I believe that because a lot of people in the West have become used to, and in some ways desensitized to violence in the Middle East. I heard it with my own ears. I was so angry. I was really sad. I was crying. The world has to know what is going on right now. This is not just a simple thing that we can just get away with and like, you know, leave our life. Nobody's going to advocate for us like we are. I feel like a moral responsibility, especially like when it comes to my people to keep advocating for them, like posting every single day, trying to share as much as I can. People say, oh, that stuff happens there. And it's so damaging and it's also very hurtful because no, that stuff it is happening for a reason. And that doesn't mean that we should turn a blind eye to it and not try to help. So it's very frustrating to come across that line of thinking as well. But human rights, it should concern everybody. If we care about what happens to the people of South Africa when they were going through apartheid and the world finally rallied together to do the right thing, there's gender apartheid happening under the Islamic Republic. So the support should be universal. If you care about human rights, you have to care about human rights everywhere. What is the end goal of these protests? Is it to end the current regime or to get reforms within the current framework or something else? Absolutely no reform. This regime is unreformable. We want them gone. 
So it is very clear, no uncertain terms. The biggest chant that we heard that became the battle cry of this movement was Zan Zendegi Azadi, which translates to woman, life, freedom. The next two biggest chants that we hear constantly are death to the dictator and death to the regime. It's very clear what the Iranian people want. So tell us what everyone who is on social media, who cares about this issue, tell me what everyone can do to help. Yeah, I think first amplifying the voices of the people of Iran is the most important thing, using the proper hashtags, following accounts of reputable news sources and people who have been actually in contact with people that are inside of Iran and giving accurate information and painting an accurate picture of what's happening, what the Iranian people are demanding. You can sign the letters and petitions and share them that are one, uh, wanting to create the UN investigative mechanism for crimes against humanity committed by the Islamic Republic. Two, there's a letter that now it went live just a couple of days ago, and now we're at 16,000 signatures. It's to remove the Islamic Republic from the UN Commission on the Status of Women. And I'm very optimistic about that letter and that measure. And I really feel like it is going to actually affect change. That commission, for those who don't know, is meant to empower women around the globe and to discuss how to do things to have women have equal rights. And the Islamic Republic has not shown at all over the 43 years that they've been in power that they care about women's rights. Was that two things? Two things that people can do? It was a bunch. It's not enough, but it's a bunch. And I appreciate all of it. Is there like one website where it sort of has all of the information together? For the specific letter for the Commission on the Status of Women, you can go to womanlifefreedom.today and that will give you information regarding that and a little bit of background. As far as a website where you can get a lot of information. There's not one that I know of. It's just reporters and networks that are actually reporting on what's going on. And it is kind of easily found on Twitter. If you go to the hashtags of Iran protests, Iran revolution, and Masa Amini, you're going to see everything that's tagged. And finally, what gives you hope? The people of Iran give me hope because watching them not lose motivation, watching them continue to go again, literally put their lives on the line. And I wanted to mention a video that I saw just recently of young people, because the average age of protesters in Iran right now is 16 to 22. So these are children that are going out there. They were met by government security forces on one end of the street. And on the other end, they kneeled and put their hands up and bowed down to these police and said, just shoot us then. That's how much they believe in their freedom is that, okay, well, if this is what you think you need to do to get rid of us, this is the only way you're going to get rid of us. We're not going anywhere anymore. And thankfully, from what we saw, nobody got shot during that moment. But it was just, it took my breath away that they went and they put their lives and their bodies on the line for freedom for their people. And those are the things that give me hope. And I know that for them, seeing the global community stand up for them gives them hope to keep fighting because they feel like, okay, we have the world's attention. People care. We're going to keep fighting for what we want. Nazanin, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is the first time after the revolution we've seen like women shoulder to shoulder with men are burning the headscarves. And headscarves is not just a small piece of cloth for Iranian women. It is the main pillar of a religious dictatorship. And for Iranian regime, headscarf, hijab is like the Berlin Wall. 
if we tear this wall down, the Islamic Republic won't exist. So by burning headscarves, Iranian women actually sending a message to the regime that this is a revolution and this is just the beginning of uh, the end. They want uh, to end gender apartheid regime. And that is why you see that teenagers are facing guns and bullets. Teenagers saying that we have nothing to lose. They, they actually saying that uh, we're ready to die, but we don't want to live with the humiliation. Until all of us are safe, none of us are safe. What is happening in Iran, both the horrific abuses and killings of women for daring to exist in public, and the huge and righteous public uprising against those abuses, are possible anywhere else in the world. Women are and have been regarded as less than, and when governments push their anti-woman agendas— the people will push back. I stand with the women of Iran. I call on our government to support them in their anger and their cause. Women, wherever we are, must not be viewed as inherently immoral. Our bodies, our very beings, are not to be policed. Not now, not ever, and not anywhere on this earth. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>